As part two of our exploration of visible queerness, I am including trigger warnings for the following episode pertaining to discussions of murder and the HIV and AIDS crisis of the 1980s and 90s, as well as use of homophobic slurs. talk about aesthetics. Aesthetics are most specifically described as the philosophical study of beauty and taste. In more general terms, the term aesthetic has come to represent the artistic and spiritual merits of an object, an individual, or a collective. So when we strip it down to its bare bones, applying the matter of aesthetics to the political resistance and activism of the queer community in the Western world over the last 40 and 50 years, what does that activism physically look like? What materials, visual styles has it utilised? When we think of the Stonewall riots and the subsequent first ever Pride March, we think of the brave drag queens and trans women decked from head to toe in jewellery and stereotypically feminine attire which so beautifully juxtaposes, complements the aggression with which they confronted the police who sought to arrest them for their gender or sexuality on that famous night. As Paul Preciado wrote in Testo Junkie, Sex, Drugs and Biopolitics in the Pharmacopornographic, the real or imagined power of femininity and or sexuality can be used to both excite and trouble an audience. So our question is, how has that which we have been an audience to, over these many years of queer activism, excited and troubled communities into action? What are the aesthetics of political resistance? Welcome to episode 3 of Slash Queer. You're here with me, your host, Georgie Williams. When art and political resistance intersect, we come to understand how visual mediums can be used to harness social power and politically disrupt spaces. And so much of queer history is inextricably tied to matters of social power and social disruption, with good reason. This was another subject which I had the good fortune to discuss with Gary Wasden, the executive director of the Leather Archives and Museum in Chicago, who was one of the interviewees with whom I discussed queer kinship back in episode two. Gary was more than happy to address one of the most well-known examples of queer resistance and activism, the response to the HIV and AIDS crisis of the 1980s and 1990s. How were the leather and kink communities tied into political resistance in the 20th century and the turn of the 21st century? Well, I think um, you'd probably find a somewhat different answer from different people, but you know, I think at its essence, the leather community, the kink community, and we often use leather as, as an umbrella term for leather, kink, BDSM, have always been associated with power and power dynamics. And especially in late 20th century, during the AIDS crisis, that was probably one of the most visible moments of the leather community stepping forward and people in the leather community being more politically active and being among the first that stepped up to fight back, to push back, but also to care for the community, to be the ones to, to step in. And, you know, I think that comes from a lot of different places. And certainly they weren't the only ones, certainly the trans community, drag queens. but 
I think the common theme there of marginalized peoples, of those subsets of uh, marginalized groups who found that voice in their community uh, and for us really in the leather community to find the strength to push back and to get involved. And, you know, I think a lot of that power comes from being marginalized. Certainly not true for everyone, but you do often find people who are oppressed, who look for those sources of power and find ways to overcome and fight back. And that translates into political power uh, in so many instances, but most especially in, in the leather and kink communities. personally feel explains this intersection of kink communities and political activism, aside from, from sure. what we've already covered. I think the, the, the intersection that we see between leather kink and political power is really that need for a voice and that need for uh, space in the conversation. And, you know, I think for many of us, the realization that there was never going to be an invitation to join in that conversation was obvious really from the start. And that if we wanted to be there, if we wanted things to change, we had to step up and make that change. And I should say, I'm, I'm using we, I'm part of that community, but of course, people who came long before me are the ones who really did, you know, the heavy lifting in this. But, you know, I, I think it's that realization that comes from, from feeling like there's not a place for you that pushes people to carve out and create that space for themselves. A lot of that builds just from years of frustration, of anger. And certainly, I think if we look at what has come out of the tragedy of the AIDS crisis that for many people I think was a motivator because in the past what had just been feeling like you know being left out having to hide turned into watching friends and family members die and seeing you know your population decimated really led people and, and in some instances forced people to step up and fight back and certainly the leather and kink communities were hard hit by this and it pushed people to point of saying it's no longer a choice we have to speak up we have to be involved we have to push back or literally we will not exist anymore given that we were in the leather archives which as i mentioned in episode two is an umbrella term that also includes the kink and bdsm community i felt that if anyone could explain the role of materials in queer activism it was gary So how do you feel that aesthetics and physical materials such as leather play a role in social visibility and political resistance? When we talk about leather really in particular, I mean, there is a real physicality uh, to leather. And while that's not everything, it is an important piece of the leather community. And, you know, there's lots that sort of said about this, and I don't think most of us really think too much about the sort of physical nature of putting on leather. But, you know, if you think about why leather exists as clothing to begin with, I mean, it's durable, it's strong, it's tough. It was worn specifically because it 
provided that protection, that layer of protection, then yeah, that's exactly how we describe ourselves as leather people. So you see that there is kind of represented in the physical artifact of leather in, in many ways a, a sort of summary of, of how we describe ourselves as leather people. And it is that sort of empowerment. It is that donning something that uh, provides uh, uh, a level of protection. And, uh, you know, even though the concept is different for many people, I think almost anyone who wears leather can describe that there is a distinct change in the way you feel when you put it on. It's uh, you, you're a different person when you're wearing leather. You behave differently. You carry yourself differently. Uh, you feel differently. Your self-confidence is different. And it's just that sending a message to others who see you and how they respond and react to you that feeds into how you see yourself uh, and what it means to you personally. So I think that connection with the actual leather that we wear really does translate into how we describe the whole reason that leather as a community exists, specifically, I think, in the LGBT population. You know, most of what we do and we talk about, we've built culture and traditions around the leather for many people. It's less true, I think, today, and you find arguments about it to whether or not how important some of these traditions are. But, um, you know, being gifted your first piece of leather was always kind of a rite of passage of coming into the community for, for many. And, you know, for myself, it was, you know, being gifted my first cover uh, and that sort of moment um, where a piece has uh, a greater meaning behind just the sort of, again, physicality of putting on your head, but, but everything that it represents and the fact that it ties you to other people. And it's a visual clue. It's when you go out and you're wearing leather and you see other people wearing leather. It's a visual clue that we're connected. Even though I don't know you, I don't know who you are. There's something that ties us together. And you know, at the end of the day, that's what a lot of us are looking for is that feeling of community and other people who we can make you know, a connection with either just for a few hours, a night, or our lifetime. I was interested in asking Gary about how these histories were being recorded and preserved at the archives. Because when we talk about visible queerness or visual aesthetics, we need to address what it means to be visible. If we were to align our perspective with the assertion of French philosopher Michel Foucault and state that visibility is a trap, one could argue that being visibly queer despite being a form of powerful social disruption and, at times, political resistance, also makes the visible individual vulnerable, at risk, and subject to disciplinary forces outside of their accepting social circles. With this in mind, I decided to question Gary about how pseudonyms play a role in the preservation of histories and of desired anonymity. With regards to the use of pseudonyms in the archives mm -hmm. here, how do you navigate the anonymity of individuals who have been engaged in these circles but still try and destigmatize the histories? Because I feel like it can be difficult to counterbalance giving people the privacy they need, right. but also effectively recording these histories and documenting what occurred. How do you work through that sure. from an ethical standpoint? 
the use of pseudonyms, or as we more commonly sort of call them in practice, uh, scene names that people refer to themselves, it is complex. It's complicated both in real life as well as in an archival collection like this. It presents challenges, but they're also incredible benefits to us. And people use scene names for different reasons and pseudonyms. And sometimes it's not necessarily because of anyone trying to hide or a need for anonymity. I myself often go by Daddy G and many people know me as that. Many people who don't know my name know me as Daddy G. And it's not for any reason of trying to hide my name or hide who I am. It's just almost like a nickname that people have taken to. And there are many people like that in, in Leather and Kink who use a scene name that they feel better describes their personality, their style, their interests, or whatever. And it just becomes the name they're known by. People do go by many names, and people know others uh, by multiple names. In the case of the archives, and from a researcher's standpoint, it's both respecting the names that people wish to use and wish to identify with, first and foremost, and those that wish to remain anonymous. And this is true to some extent in any archive, in any research collection. It just tends to be a little more prevalent in collections like the Leather Archives and Museum, just because of the content and because there is a stigma still that's associated for many people who are part of these communities. Anything to do with non-normative sexual behavior is still somewhat taboo in, in our world today. And you know, many of the people who have a need to be anonymous, to remain anonymous, do so just for their own protection, either for career or family, for whatever reason, just don't feel safe being identified as part of this. So I think first and foremost is we have to accept that. If the most important thing is for the collections to be preserved and saved uh, and housed here at the archives, and if that is a necessary step in making that happen, then we accept it without question. Usually, of course, there's a time limit on that to provide an opportunity in the future when that is no longer necessary. And that gives us at least something down the road, usually past the person's death, plus a certain number of years to when things can become more publicly known or not have to be redacted uh, in many instances. Apart from that, with much of it, it's a sort of complex juggle and the, the impetus is really on researchers to understand the need for that and to find ways to to work with that. And you know, the best that we can offer is figuring out where it matters and where it doesn't. Telling someone's story and learning about someone's life experiences is valuable even if you don't know that last little piece of information of their name and, and who they were. At the same time, as the world changes, we do see less of that now. And the slow acceptance of kink, leather, BDSM, and the role that it plays in people's lives does at least help people uh, make that choice a little more easily about their need for, for anonymity. At the end of the day, as with all of this, it's likely something that's going to be around for most of our lifetimes because it's 
the, the world is not changing that rapidly. I mean, if you look even at uh, just vanilla LGBT, we still have people that are not comfortable coming out and then coming out not just as queer, but queer and kinky is just another layer of, of difficulty. So yeah, it, you know, it can be immensely challenging. We encourage people, especially researchers who are coming in to find ways to incorporate that into their research and to look at, understand and appreciate kind of why that's important. You know, interestingly enough for us, where we probably see the most anonymity is in the straight and pan kink communities because for so many of them in our collections, the Leather Archives and Museum is of course across all sexualities, but in the straight and pan communities, many of them are parents and have kids and they have never had that sort of coming out experience. And so for them, the stakes are quite different and they even, you know, just in kind of recording the events that they hold, um, they're quite different. And there's a cloak of anonymity amongst themselves that's uh, even more shrouded in secrecy. Queer-centric political resistance does, of course, present itself in aesthetics beyond those commonly associated with kink and BDSM circles. Gary notes the history of drag queens engaging in activism during the AIDS crisis, and this engagement is one of a multitude of examples demonstrating the enduring and pervasive nature of political critique and resistance within the art of drag. Drag is inherently disruptive. Visually, it challenges notions of gender, sexuality, and even class, and, when done respectfully, race. Drag artists use their bodies as canvases which are not blank, cannot be blank, due to the imposition of gender and sexual norms, to subvert, query, and confront the expectations we place upon said bodies. At its very core is the ability for drag artists to, to varying degrees, create discomfort. Just as an effective comedian knows how to generate and dispel tension within a crowd, drag artists can invite or diffuse discomfort, if they wish to do so. It is with this power and social influence that it becomes evident how drag can and has played a crucial role in a myriad of social justice movements throughout the 20th and 21st century. When I originally talked to Sister Roma, the international ambassador for drag activist group The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, as part of episode 2, I wanted to satisfy a personal curiosity I had about how the visual presentation of The Sisters was received by wider society. For those of you who are curious about this presentation, please visit the Slash Queer Gallery for this episode, where I will be sharing pictures of some of The Sisters in action, as well as of Sister Roma herself. The visual presentation of these activists as drag nuns is a perfect example of a community challenging ideas about femininity and religious power, creating and potentially diffusing discomfort, and utilizing their aesthetics as a mechanism for generating awareness through their activism and advocacy. The religious aspect of the sisters. How do people receive that? Do you feel like there has been a perspective shift with regards to that over the years? Do you face any hostility with regards to that? Or do people receive it quite well? Oh no, everybody loves us. No, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a huge, so we are 
men, mostly. Well, we have all members of all genders, men, women, transgender people. Most of us are men presenting as women, presenting as nuns. So it's very emotional. It's very controversial. It's always been, it can be very divisive and it can be very um, shocking to a lot of people because there's so much iconry involved around the Catholic religion and presenting yourself as some sort of holy order. So some people just don't get it and they refuse to get it. They'll never understand that we're not making fun of nuns. We are nuns. We're serving our community where they live in the best way that we know how. We work with the youth and with elders and with intravenous drug users and people who are displaced and living on the streets. And we do all of the things that good intended nuns do. That The sisters take the best part of religion and put it into use. And I have had experiences with traditional nuns who will come up and thank me for the work that I do and recognize me as a sister and really appreciate us. But there has been a shift overall, not just in the religious community, but also in the gay community and the community at large regarding the sisters. And it sort of probably also mirrors the change in drag overall around the world. It's just become more accepted and more appreciated for different reasons. So that's encouraging. To better understand what it is that the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence do, I also talked to Sister Padu. Sister Padu, who I briefly mentioned in episode two, is the director of the LGBTQ Center at Purdue University in Indiana. As before, not the same spelling. Sister Padu is a powerhouse of activism who has been engaged in direct action and advocacy pertaining to queer issues for several decades now, and establishing an LGBTQ center at a university situated in the middle of a Republican stronghold state is no small feat. Padu was more than happy to indulge my curiosities about what drag activism actually looks like. What is the praxis of the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence? In other words, what beliefs and ideas do you apply as part of your activism, and what does that application look like? The idea behind the Sisters and the world of the Sisters is that we do our activism, we are engaging the world through joy. And I think that it's a very simple concept in how it sounds, but in fact, it's actually quite complex in how it sort of works its way into the world. And so, you know, we show up, some of us paint, some of us do not paint our faces. We wear our, you know, coronets, the, the headpieces that we wear that represent our houses. We may choose to wear jewelry or other forms of decoration. but. When we engage people, we try and engage people through levity, through humor, through wit, and through wisdom in ways that shed light on some of the types of challenges that we're experiencing in our country and in the world, some of the ways that we may stereotype or have bias and experience oppression. And we try to engage all of this, like I said, centered through this one word, joy. And that can be hard at times, but when we do it, when we do it successfully, I think we have the opportunity to bring people together and to also as sisters build community. 
And I think that is a very unique experience when it comes to the type of activism that we do as Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. And so that for me has been, I think, one of the, the most exciting and interesting parts of being a sister. How have you seen drag be utilized in activism? What do you feel the art of drag brings with regards to direct action and the incitement of political change? As somebody who uses drag in my activism, you know, we talk about it as an opportunity for us to reflect the beauty of the communities that we serve, to reflect the beauty of the diversity in the world around us. So people come up to us all the time and say, oh, sisters, you're beautiful, sister. And it gives us the chance to turn that compliment back onto the world that we are working within and to say, well, we are a reflection of you. We are a reflection of the people who we are working with and working for. And I think that that is very powerful and it causes people to stop for a moment because they may not be thinking that that's going to be the response they're going to receive. It causes them to smile. It causes them to have a moment of joy, right? It goes back to that joy for a second. I think that I can take a further step back and take a moment to think of ourselves as sort of these cosmic clowns and a historical perspective too, where, you know, if you look at the idea of a clown or a jester in society, right? And not all of us are funny inherently or are trying to be, but the reality is when we put on these faces or when we put on drag, whatever drag means to us, it empowers us to be a character in our society that can potentially call out something that is happening, something that is going wrong in society. So in, in the old courts in Europe, the court jester right, played the role of not just sort of the comic and the idiot, but they also had the ability to speak truth to power in a way that nobody else in the court could do. They could say things and get away with saying things because they did so through the mechanism of theater and spectacle. And that's what we're doing in the same way in the 21st century as these radical queer nuns that we are as Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. So, to go on to my final question, I wanted to ask you, what do you think explains the enduring history of the sisters? Mm. Do you feel that they still have a role to play in activism and political resistance as we enter the next decade? The order is growing at a rate that is incredible. And so I am very inspired by the, the legacy and the enduring role that we are, right? Because we are not history. We are contemporary. We are at a point in time where we are nearing right now 50 houses in North America, 
and we're in more than a dozen countries worldwide, and there are sisters all over. I have the great fortune of being what we call a sister without borders. So a sister who connects with sisters all over the world, whether that be physically by visiting other sisters in other houses, or using the power of social media to make connections or facilitate connections, but also highlight the good work that sisters are doing. And I think actually that social media is enabling the work of drag activists like us to be seen and be heard in new ways that 40 years ago when the sisters were founded, we could have never imagined. And so I think that our enduring legacy will only be to continue this exponential growth that we're seeing today. And there will only be more drag activists in the world. Um, so I'm thrilled that we will see continued growth and international presence, and we'll see different ways and forms of the utilization of joy and the utilization of drag to speak truth to power. Given our national landscape, and just speaking about the United States right now, given our national landscape, given where we're seeing politics at the moment, this is a time where the opportunity to have people who can speak out or who feel like they have a space, or who can hold space, I should say, where others may not feel safe to do so, I think it's incumbent upon us to speak more. And so I am actually really inspired by the fact that we're seeing houses come out more and more in this time period. It seems like, in fact, during trying times, more houses are born. And so that brings me great joy. And so I believe that this is the time for drag activism. And we will only see this future be brighter and more glitter-filled and more glitter blessings will happen all across the world. For those curious about what a glitter blessing is, please visit the gallery for this episode on the Slash Queer website, and you can see my very own blessing which I received from the sisters. When I was blessed by Sister Padu, she used a vial containing a mixture of glitter from multiple houses of sisters from all around the world, as well as dirt from the ground at concentration camps from the Second World War eyelashes from drag queens present at the Pulse nightclub shooting, and even fragments of wood from the post Matthew Shepard was tied to when he was tortured and murdered for being gay back in 1998. Being blessed by the sisters felt both sombre and joyous, powerful and affirming. During my time in San Francisco, I met a whole host of sisters with stories to tell. Among those, Sister Fagula, who, as a 71-year-old woman, has been present at a whole host of major American events where queer history was made. She even showed me the scar on her chin from her participation in the White Knight Riots, which took place in San Francisco as a response to the lenient sentencing of the man who assassinated Harvey Milk, one of the first openly gay elected officials in the United States. But. Through all I learned about who the sisters are and what they do, 
I feel like a glitter blessing truly encapsulates the ethos of the sisters. That suffering and joy are not opposites. We can honour the former in the process of generating the latter. There may be dirt trodden deep into the grooves of queer history, but there is glitter there too. Before I left San Francisco, I had the fortune to meet one more person who, to me, was also exemplifying what it meant to use queer aesthetics to enact political change. And this person was Lindsay Bursina, the youngest ever elected politician in the state of California. As an openly queer politician, Lindsay has been using queer aesthetics to enact political change, and has arranged a drag show in Santa Rosa in February, starring RuPaul's Drag Race winner Trinity the Tuck, which also doubles as a voter registration event. Lindsay has kept the ticket prices low, at only $25, including the meet and greet. When I asked Lindsay why it is that she chose to combine drag with political engagement, she explained to me that, and I quote, As I got into politics and coming out as a queer politician, I noticed that the lack of representation wasn't just among young people and people of colour, but the LGBT plus community as well. As an avid drag race fan, I knew that the contestants all had huge followings and a huge voice, with thousands or millions of people looking up to them for guidance. So I decided that I would take what I knew as a politician and about the world of drag and put them together. Now, there have been a few voter registration organisations that have been utilising drag queens, but this is completely separate. I'm not targeting just people that go to drag shows, I'm targeting everyone. This is to open the minds of the close-minded, to reach those that can't afford $100 plus for a ticket. And it's different from those organisations because my biggest connections are with Congress. I am close friends with many senators and congressmen who have been so excited about this and are wanting to expand their horizons. What moved me about Lindsay's project is that this was not just about encouraging individuals to engage in politics through drag. It was about exposing individuals within the world of politics to queer culture. This event would be a cultural transaction which could narrow the divide between young queer voters and their representatives in Congress. This was about common ground, destigmatizing the stigmatized, and enacting political change through the visual arts. Lindsay was assisting young people in having their voices heard, undeniably. But this was a two-way street. She was also demonstrating to the people in power that the arts can be used to inspire, organize, and motivate the people. There is, of course, a long and pervasive history of our people walking many miles at rallies, at protests, at sites of conflict, in wigs and high heels. Symbolism occurs when an image comes to represent a movement, a resistance, and between the work of leather community members and drag activists and performers, it becomes clear how these aesthetics are coming to represent a collective of people who fight back against their oppression, who are unapologetic of their queerness, and are using their power to create platforms upon which many of us can stand alongside them. We owe so many of our human rights in the modern day to those who came before us, those amongst us now who use art and visuals to challenge, to confront, to organize and empower. Art and politics are indivisible. 
and when we are brave enough to use the former to address the latter, change is possible. We are heard and seen now, as a consequence of the actions of those who demanded they were seen and heard before us. This episode of the Slash Queer podcast was edited by Charles Mackinson, produced with the help of Lauren Tweedy, and scripted and presented by me, Georgie Williams. A very special thanks to fellow researcher Kate Parker for contributions to content and script. Many thanks once again to Gary Wasden at the Leather Archives and Museum in Chicago, as well as the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, most notably Sister Roma and Sister Perdue for their interviews. Many thanks also to Lindsay Bursina, otherwise known as the People's Candidate. I would like to take this opportunity to include a very relevant outtake from my interviews with Sister Perdue and Sister Tara Newholt, in which Pa was admiring her Swarovski crystal jewellery during a microphone test. I mean, the depth of joy. <laughs> I agree. Because you could look into these things forever. Yeah, and just... I would never work. <laughs> I would just look, gaze upon them. So what you're saying is that the crux of Marxist revolution mm-hmm. comes in Swarovski crystals. Correct. None of us can do a day's work. Just yeah. as long as we don't work. <laughs> what would be incredible, actually, is if... Thank you to everyone who has made the US leg of this podcast tour so special. We look forward to bringing you episode four and five in January and February 2020 as we start our research into the queer histories and cultures of Japan. One last note before we wrap up. As of episode 3, I have now launched a Slash Queer Patreon. As many of you will know, this entire trip is a self-funded venture, coming out of six years of my savings, which were initially set aside for my PhD, which I will be commencing in 2020. So every leg of this journey, every piece of equipment, Every aspect of this project thus far has come exclusively out of my own funds. Of course, I am more than happy with this, as Slash Queer is a passion project. And it is a joy to be spending my money on creating something that matters to me. That said, if you do enjoy this podcast and you wish to contribute in any way to supporting this venture, it would be lovely to have your support. You can find the Slash Queer Patreon at patreon.com forward slash slash queer. That's S-L-A-S-H, queer. The link is also available on our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages. It would mean the world to have your support. This episode was recorded on location in Chicago, Illinois, and beautiful downtown Oakland, California. Music in this episode was composed by Kevin McLeod. If you enjoyed this episode or have any feedback, please get in touch on Instagram or Twitter at at slash queer, or email us at slash queer at outlook.com. As always, until next time, stay kind, stay radical, and stay queer. Thank you.